Welcome back to Range Anxiety. It's that time of the week again. I'm Martin Donnan bringing you 30 years of automotive tuning experience in 30 minutes. And yes, it hasn't been that long since the last one, but I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission from God. Now, what movie was that out of? Same one the actual starting track was out of too. So there you go. I tied the two together. For those of you that aren't old enough to know, it was probably the best movie of all time, The Blues Brothers. Fantastic, John Belushi. May he rest in peace. So today, remember last Epicast, I was talking about what was going to happen to my poor mate Nick when he drove across the country for several hours to race his car at a hill climb and he put it on the trailer broken. Well, it came off broken too. He has no front wheel drive, so he is racing a 900 horsepower GDR through the rear wheels and the funny thing about gdrs is they don't actually work good as a two-wheel drive car they don't work as good as a normal two-wheel drive car so the thing is just on fire off the back tires everywhere fantastic to watch shithouse against the clock oh well nick good luck keep with it might teach you some throttle control skills <laughs> some new ones anyway i'm sure you have plenty keep with it and uh, we'll have a summary probably next show so today Feedback keeps on talking to me. What shall I buy? What shall we do? What's the next big thing, Martin? Well, we know that JDM is coming on to a massive boom. It's during a massive boom. In my mind, it's probably peaked, but, you know, I'm not very good at picking markets and what they do. Um, generally, the best way to make money, uh, from my advice, when it comes to markets at least, is to listen to what I tell you and then do the opposite. That normally works out well. This is not financial advice. Do your own research. Um, well, GDRs have just gone absolutely mental. I missed out on a nice 32 the other day with 20,000 kilometres from new on it. Oh, well, that happens. But I wouldn't pay the kind of money that people are paying for these things right now. Stupid money. I see R34s, that they would have to be the primo thing out there at the moment if you want to blow a huge wad of cash at the very top of a market. An R34 would have to be it. They were great cars, R34s, but they were, you know, the last version of something that was getting pretty long in the tooth and tired. You know, it was a 10-year sort of platform or more, that GDR platform with the RB26 in it, and it was starting, you know, to run its course. There were better cars available in 1999 and 2000 than an R34 GDR. They weren't particularly fast, they weren't particularly good looking, but they were iconic. They were GTRs and that's all that matters to the people that are buying them today. Well, what are they paying? This is where it all gets ridiculous, out of hand, and in my opinion, humble opinion, unsustainable. People are paying mid-hundreds for a cooking version R34 GDR, an average condition, like, you know, good condition, but not great, not a concourse car, up to like 300 for some of the rare versions, like NERS and 400 for N1s, and the money is just absolutely ridiculous for a car that it's, it's going to be touch and go whether they can manage to sustain these kinds of price levels. The reason I say that is that all of the smart car collector guys I know, I do know a few, I'm not saying I'm one myself, but they will tell you it must have a racing pedigree and raced at the top level if you are to continue, if you are going to speculate and make big dollars out of these things. Well, 
R34s never, well, outside of Japan, never really did much at all, um, in my knowledge of them, and I do have some knowledge of them. I used to, to run a magazine, or editor at large, it was called, and I was quite large at the time, high-performance imports in Australia, and I went to Japan, and I, I followed around what R34s did, and they were pretty cool in local racing in Japan, but they didn't really stick their nose outside of that arena. R32, totally different story. R32 was a proper car. It was a Group A homologate. Well, apart from being Japan's own take at a supercar at the time, it was a very effective Group A homologation race car where you had to make 100 road-going examples of the car for them to be allowed in the international Group A formula. And wherever they were sold, or wherever the car was going to be raced, wherever country, they had to have sold 100 of them. And so... Australia got 100 very nice R32 GDRs, and they were, you know, they were a fantastic thing. Anyone that's Aussie enough and old enough will remember the famous pack of assholes incident at Mount Panorama, Bathurst, uh, when Jim Richards lost it because he did put the car in the fence when the flag was red, uh, when, sorry, when the race was red flagged, but they take the results one lap back from when the red flag was thrown, and Jim Richards was in the lead with a very young looking Mark Scaife at the time, was in the lead and effectively, by the FIA rules, won the race. However, the people watching the race, <laughs> they had different ideas and booed and hissed him. And poor Jim, he's such a gentleman. He lost it. He lost his shit and said, I'll remember this day forever and something like that. And you're nothing but a, a pack of or a bunch of arseholes. And I remember watching it live thinking, oh, you go, Jim. He went up a notch or two in my estimation at that point anyway. It was really funny, good stuff. But the 32 was made of the right gear. It was a race car. It was an edgy-looking thing. It didn't have any of the softness of the R34 or the R33, which was a particularly soft-looking thing. It was a raw, edgy thing. It didn't handle that well. The Atessa, was, the four-wheel drive system was very unrefined, and it could just about kill you at any time if you drove one hard enough, particularly if it was modified. Fantastic. That was a man's car, a raw car. You know, and to, uh, sorry to sound sexist, this is, this is a gender-equal, unbiased show, but, you know, when you say a man's car, it was a, just a grumpy, smelly, hair-raising thing to drive. And, yeah, great. So, in my mind, a good R32 should be worth more than a good R34. And an R33, well, that's the underdog, isn't it? Because everyone seems to have overlooked them. They call them the whale. They call them this. They call them that. And they were a tiny bit bigger, but in today's... In today's terms, an R33 is still quite a small, quite a light car, quite a good car. And they are the softest of them all in price. So my hot tip now is if you want to get onto the GDR gravy train, then what you must do is get onto the R33 and find the best one you can, the most limited model you can, a V-Spec, obviously, and go for it and sit on it or maybe even drive it and have some fun. R33 is the king. So why has everyone not listened to me and why has the R34 price gone mental? Well, it's all driven by America. Hello, my American listeners. How are you? You are ruining it for everybody by putting these R34s in demand. And I'm, I'm not sure what the cutoff is. I think it's 20 years or something or 15 years or whatever. But the R34 GDR is coming up to a point where it can now be uh, imported into the US or very shortly, a year or two or whatever, can be imported into the US and driven on American roads as a right-hand drive car. 
So therefore, people are starting to buy them and sit on them and demand is exceeding supply. So with any commodity, basic economics here, once demand exceeds supply, the price starts to go up and the demand is indeed exceeding supply right now with R34s. However, this is where the whole bubble concept comes into it because people are starting to speculate and test the waters saying, oh, I wonder what price these things will really sell for. So people are edging up 20 grand and edging up 10 grand and edging up 30 grand and 40 grand and all of a sudden it's mad. Now, I know someone that did go out and spend over $300,000 on an R34. I told him he's an idiot. I said, are you ever going to drive it? And he goes, oh no, I bought it as an investment. Well, we'll see how that works out for him because, I hate to tell you this, all cars go up and down, the majority at least. There are some really rare birds that, you know, are unobtainium um, that you just keep going up. But R34 GDRs aren't one of those. They are quite readily available still. And so this guy is going to sit on this as a $300,000 plus investment but I've got bad news for him because they cycle up and down. Prices go up and down. Anyone that's been watching the Porsche bubbles over the years, the prices go up and down and up and down. At the moment, Porsche prices are starting to soften off and come back a bit. 2016, they were through the roof. American muscle cars, cheap as chips now. Why? Because all the you know, Gen Zers that are looking for a car now as a collectible and classic, it's had to have been on Forza or Gran Turismo they don't see GT500 Shelbys on there, or very rarely, and they don't see, you know, old school 50s Corvettes on there. It's all the JDM stuff. And it's these kids that are now adults that have got the necessary income and the necessary money in the bank to go out and drop it, and drop it hard on these late 90s Japanese performance cars. And look, even though the price is definitely going to come back, you read it here, by 2024... These cars will not be worth this money, so buy them and drive them. But that is the good thing about them. Being Japanese cars, they actually drive bloody nice, like really, really well. They have air conditioning that works. They have power windows that work. They have engines that are reasonably reliable and smooth, which is a great thing. And you can use them if you want to use them. But of course, once you spend $300,000 on one, you're not bloody using it, are you? You're leaving it sitting in the shed because you don't want to put any Ks on it. And, you know, a, a fly might shit on it. And, oh, that would be the end of the world. So, yeah, where these cars were once taken out and thrashed solidly, they're now becoming shed pieces. And their beauty wasn't to look at. None of them are particularly good-looking cars, in my opinion. Again, my opinion. A lot of people will be, like, rolling their eyes now and saying, Donnie, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I drive a Tesla. I obviously don't know what good-looking cars are. <laughs> There, take that, Marty boy. Um, but yeah, none of these cars are so great to look at. And that goes for the Supras and it goes for, you know, anything of the Fast and Furious era. A lot of them look very muscular, like particularly like the early Evos. And they, they are actually a good thing now, in my opinion. Subarus seem to have surpassed them to a degree, like the two-door Subarus, the Coupes, the STIs of the era, the 99s and some of the special... You know, there's that many special super-duper version Subarus and RAs and Group Ns and Spec Cs and any of that special kind of shit is going to do well and it's going to make a little bit of money, but not stupid money. 22B, probably the most famous and most collectible of all Subarus, making crazy money now. If you can get one cheap enough, sub-$100,000, 
probably a great investment, but not for a quarter of a million plus. But again, they did have some racing heritage, so if anything's going to hold its value, it'll probably be one of those versus a normal road car cooking version R34, which in my mind is a particularly uninteresting car from a collector's viewpoint. So yeah, back to the Evos. I think if you can find a really nice Tommy Mac Evo 6.5 and its original non-messed with bloody good thing. But they're already starting to creep up too. So what are the cars I think that have been overlooked? And if you want to add a good JDM cracker to your collection that you should be considering. Well, I came across one the other day. I was working on, on that old. I was working on these things when they were bloody well brand new. And that was an ST204. Yeah, you JDM enthusiasts already know what this is. Celica GT4 Group A. Only Carlos Sainz won World Rally Championships in these things. Toyota got caught cheating and excluded from World Rally Championships in these things. The four-wheel drive Celica with its 3S GTE turbo engine was a bloody beaut car. Cool looking car. Cool looking car, in my opinion. And the ST205, another cool looking thing with its, you know, twin round lights this time. Probably the 204 is a little bit softer looking and a little bit nicer looking, in my opinion. But bloody brilliant cars. You get in them and drive them and they're not as refined as a 34 Sabre, they're a bit earlier in the piece, well, well kind of. Um, they've got that little bit of a rawer edge to them. And I had this beauty, an ST204 in at work. It was pretty original. And I had the privilege, I call it a privilege of doing my job sometimes when I work on cars that I really enjoy. And this thing had a Haltech ECU in it. And uh, it was hidden though. And none of the sensors were changed under the bonnet. And it drove really, really well. And it made some good power. It made like you know, nearly 300 horsepower at all four wheels through the Howtech ECU, and it drove good, you know, and it looked great. And I thought, you know what, Martin, I could own one of these, particularly if you get the Group A version that had the crazy-looking, like, bonnet scoot and a couple of other things. Those ST204s and 5s, if you can still find one, are indeed a great buy. So there you go. That's my tip number one. What's my tip number two? Well... I don't know if they've started to move yet stateside because I don't I don't check the prices over there. So any of my American listeners of my fantastic Epicasts, please feel free to email me at dtech, D-T-E-C-H, at S-E-N-E-T dot com dot A-U and tell me about the price of the original Mazda MX-5 or Miata, as they were called there. They were modelled on... A very beautiful car, which was the Lotus Elan. It wasn't a particularly fast car in its day, but it was a beautiful car at the time. And the MX-5 was the recreation, the recreation of the of the Elan, the Lotus Elan, but done with typical Japanese finesse, where everything worked in it, all the electrics worked, and you know, from the late 80s when those things were new, most of them are still working today. They weren't, you know, the most they weren't the most inspiring performers. You know, 1.6 normally aspirated. They didn't make a lot of horsepower. They didn't go very fast. But they handled well, and they were fun. And their fit and finish was superb compared to any other sports car of the time. And they were affordable. They were a cheap, cheap-ish car back in the day. And they were one of the first cult cars that I remember. Mainly old men bought them, but a lot of younger people, I suppose, moved on to them once they came down, you know, to, to super cheap bargains. But my reckoning is this. If you can find an absolutely mint, unmolested, no mods, factory wheels, MX-5 1.6 right now with reasonable mileage on it, 
even even high mileage really won't hurt it as long as the body's good everything's good on it then use it occasionally sit on it in my mind a really really good investment what else is there that might be a good investment this jdm well some of the early civics that's right early civics that the b16a the vtir civics to me to my mind it, they were a hot hatch it just blew everything from europe out of the water in the day forget about golfs and things like that i mean they were cool but they just didn't have the raw vtec yo grunt of a vtir they seemed to rev forever like forever they were like a rotary where they just the, the taco needle just kept moving around and around the dial and it was intoxicating as a young guy i remember you know driving these things i was driving a an e G9, I reckon it was, VTIR, Civic, and, you know, I'd get up, brrr, up to six, then rev all the way to about 9,000 RPM. It was a fantastic thing, and I just, you, when you drove them, you, you would just be, like, drunk on VTEC, you know what I mean? You'd just want to hit that, and you'd want to you'd hear that noise and, and feel that rush as it, it stepped onto its different cam profiles and, and did its thing. Really, really fantastic, and I think they... Um, just because of their rawness. And they were raced, those engines were raced a lot. In a lot of cases, they removed the VTEC because, uh, the, or the low end of it, because they, they just kept them in the rev band with properly um, matched trans, uh, transmission ratios. But I think these things, because they were so effective on the track, they were so fast and, and generally just so much fun to drive and nothing went wrong with them either, I think they will be quite a significant collector's car in the future. So there you go, Honda. And Honda always, always did their engineering brilliantly. I don't care. You know, they lost their way a bit with their, with all their one-world stuff and their hydrogen cars and, and so on. But when Honda put their mind to something, like, for example, Formula One, they might start out at the back, but their end product is always world-leading. Always has been. And anything they turn their hand to, they seem to be able to do absolutely fantastically. So yeah, don't don't ever doubt that they will be good things to have. Suzuki's early Suzuki's, yeah, the original Swift GDI, you know, the little square one, had one back in the day. Or, or my good friend Mark Tilbrook had one. I used to drive it a lot. Fantastic little car. I, I reckon they'll be curious. And there's a whole heap of other cars um, that the Japanese made that aren't worth a lot of money at the moment. Particularly their their K cars, their 660cc supercharged turbocharged you know there was a i think it was a subaru what was it called is it the justy and they had a supercharged a root supercharged 660 cc little twin cam motor in it there was the um nissan march super turbo which was a little bit bigger it wasn't really a k car i don't think but it was super and turbocharged which was an amazing device not particularly fast but cool there was my favorite the Suzuki Cappuccino, and I love those things because it was sort of like an MX-5 that had been put in a press, but, you know, they had a tiny little turbo on it, 660cc twin cam, and it was quite comical to watch me drive it because I was a rather large boy back then, and that was a rather small car, and I remember getting a, a Mazda BP, BP-1800, I think it was an IHI RHB5 turbocharger and putting on it, which was like putting a T51R on an SR20 in sort of size configuration in the day and a decent front mount intercooler in it we put a good front mount in it and i tuned the injection up as much as i could they weren't particularly programmable in the ecu i think i got an Autronic aftermarket ecu on it uh, for it but never put it put it on there but 
back in the day when I was doing this, it was a, you know, it made, I think I got it up to like 100 kilowatts at the wheels from about 55. So it was quite a grunty little thing, you know, it doubled the power. Um, and uh, back in the day, we used to have this event called the Four Six and Rotonats at Adelaide International Raceway. It was drag racing. And it was kind of like uh, we'd do some eliminations, heads up, like that went all day. And then into the night, there were, you know, 150, 200 cars that would come from all around the country for this. In the end, it was a DYO. It was um, dial your own and uh, bracket racing. And I dialed in. I started out in about a field of 100 people and I dialed in with a 16.0, I reckon. Extended Cappuccino did about an 18.0 or a 19. I dialed in at a 16.0. I was on street tyres, nothing special, and uh, I had the top down because I just, you know, I think they only had a hard top, So I was, and it was summer, so I was racing it with the top off, and uh, yeah, I kept on hitting that 400, 410 uh, light, so uh, the lights were almost perfect, I don't know why, it was probably so I had good vision, you know, around the windscreen, but I just kept in fluking, it was just pure luck, perfect lights, and just managed every time not to get run down before the finish line so yeah that was pretty cool and eventually there was only like 10 of us left and i was one of them and i thought yo beauty so the crowd were all raucous and half drunk at this stage because that was back in the good old days when we both had drag racing and bars at the drag racing they were half drunk at the stage and uh I decided to put on a show in the tyre warm-up and stepped off this thing, Rev Limited, stepped off it in second gear and stomped, put on the brakes and just held it there and smoked it up. And being the smart-ass that I am, and I was even a smarter-ass as a young guy, I had both hands off the wheels, wheel punching air as this thing was smoking up. And I pulled up to the lights, I did my run, and I won. And I was down to the final six or something. And... Uh, when I came back and collected my time card, the officials came up to me and wanted to boot me because not controlling the vehicle in the warm-up area, no hands on the steering wheel. Irresponsible, stupid, but I talked my way out of it because, you know, it was 660cc, guys. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. I promise. And so, anyway, made it through to the final four nearly broke out i reckon i ran a 1601 coming up to the final and i was in the final against some rotor or something something that was running like 12s i was in the final and you beauty we lined up at the bowl and everyone's going look at this fat idiot in this tiny little car how the hell did he make it that far well i don't know either so don't ask me so I lined up, I went to line up, I went to do it, go into the tyre warm-up area, and the officials start pointing at the car, pointing at the back wheels, and I'm like, what, what? I had a flat. I had a flat tyre. My second-hand tyres from a used tyre shop, I had a flat, and I missed out on the final. I probably wouldn't have won it anyway, but there you go. I kind of screwed myself. So that was probably my most unlucky um, incidents in motorsport. I've had much stupider ones, which we'll get onto in um, upcoming episodes. Like, for example, when I drove clean into the start line at a hill climb event. And we'll talk about that because if I've made a mess up, I'm the first person to tell you about it. And that's why you all love me so much and keep listening to this great Epicast. So there you go. That's pretty much our show for today. I've given you some good things to look out for. I've given you my thoughts that may well turn out to be really wrong on what's purchasable and what's not at the moment. 
thank you for tuning in. I'll come back. I may even do a Sunday session tomorrow, you know, because I'm feeling quite excited. But now it's time to go and walk my dog, Mackie the Westie. So thank you for tuning in to Range Anxiety. <laughs>